0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. This episode will be on Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. James and I are happy to be here. Finishing our little marathon of the original trilogy of Star Wars, George Lucas's finale, Return of the Jedi. It's, uh, I think, a fitting conclusion to what he started with uh, Luke Skywalker's saga. I think it's a, a, a fun movie. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it was a good entry in this trilogy. It's tough to cap off a trilogy, especially one as epic and groundbreaking as this was. But they nailed it. They did a really good job. After watching it and going through all the films again, like I said in the first one, like I always have a different perspective. And when I rewatch the original trilogy or rewatch any and revisit any kind of films, and it, I'm going to say Return of the Jedi is no longer my favorite. I think Empire is sensational. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my goodness, that movie is good. I always <laughs> knew that. A New Hope's fantastic as well. But this is a very solid co- conclusion to this epic saga. It came out in 1983. Rotten Tomatoes has this at an 83% Critic score 94% audience score, IMDB has it at an 8.3. Quick little synopsis, after a daring mission to rescue Han Solo from Jabba the Hutt, the Rebels dispatch to Endor to destroy the second Death Star. Meanwhile, Luke struggles to help Darth Vader back from the dark side without falling into the Emperor's Trap. The original title for this movie was also called Revenge of the Jedi back in the day. And even the first teaser trailer for Return of the Jedi was advertised as Revenge of the Jedi. And they made posters. You got a poster. I got a poster right here of Revenge of the the Jedi. That's the actual poster. The original OG art print. And in December 1982, Lucas decided that revenge was not appropriate as a true Jedi should never seek revenge and returned to his original title, Return of the Jedi. However, by that time, thousands of revenge teaser posters, artwork by Drew Strudson, had been printed and distributed. Lucasfilm stopped the shipping of the posters and sold the remaining stock of 6,800 posters to Star Wars fan club members for $9.50. Oh, that's nice of him. That's still actually pretty expensive. It's still cool, (laughs) though. It's like a collector's (laughs) item. That's why I got this one instead of Return of the Jedi or any of the other ones, because I think it's just a cool poster, and the title itself is the most badass of them all, Revenge of the Jedi. And actually, I'm sorry. That's actually a great deal, because they were probably theater-sized posters. Probably, yeah. So they are probably very nice ones, the double-printed ones. Now, this one was also... We have a new director coming into the seat. It's directed by Richard Marquand, who unfortunately passed away only four years after this movie came out in 1987. He was only 49 years old he suffered a stroke while driving his kids to school his next film after this was released posthumously called hearts of fire starring bob dylan the film was also written by lawrence kasdan and lucas with uncredited contributions by david peoples and Marquand, based on lucas's story kasdan claims he told lucas the that return of the jedi was a weak title ironically that's what they ended up going with eventually and they used <laughs> a lot of red for the marketing of this movie which i thought was really cool yeah, I love um, last the last Jedi used a lot of red in their marketing. I feel like it was a mar- uh, like calling card to the marketing campaign for this one because they did a lot of silhouettes with red background, which I thought was very striking yeah, imagery. Yeah, calling card campaign. or copycatting, I don't know. Say <laughs> <laughs> two each zone own, and, um, so return. I think so return. I think is a, has a great conclusion, and the third act is very strong. I'm I'm very satisfied with. Darth Vader's end with Luke Skywalker, with the the main trio with Han and Leia, and, and uh, Lando, and how everything ends up. I think it was a a really great ending, and it capped off the trilogy really well. However, I think that this movie, all in all, was a big step down from Empire. A big in, step in a, in a lot of ways. In there, but there are a lot of great elements. I think the the speeder bike chase sequence in the forest is one of the highlights of the entire Star Wars franchise i think it's really remarkable how they did it i'm sure when audiences saw it it was absolutely mind-blowing to see in the theater it was really well done and it was very exciting and you can see how so many chase sequences have kind of duplicated what they did in that scene in that scene in terms of the story of that chase from start to finish in the final battle is terrific i love Pal- palpatine's death uh, there's a lot of great visual effects work and the actors do a, do a phenomenal job I think that Mark Hamill came into his own in this film and really gave a strong performance as the lead. Uh, it was great to see Ian McDiarmid as the emperor. I think that he's extremely underrated as a villain, a movie villain, and his performance is just mind-blowing, especially when you consider like he was actually quite young when he played Palpatine because we're used to seeing him as, you know, Palpatine in the prequels, but like when they made this one he was 20 25 years, 20 years younger. So he was actually a pretty young man in all the prosthetics, but he he pulled off playing this extremely old man a lot so i i think there are a lot of great elements to this film and all in all it is a it is a good entry in the star wars saga i agree you know i loved the ending of this film my favorite parts of this entire film are with luke invader and palpatine those are the greatest scenes in this film for sure for me the most emotional and most impactful and you know this entire trilogy has been leading up to it so that third act the entire sequence between them on the new death star is just fascinating and i wish it was even longer i wish i could see it more and i understand and i love the the triple plot cross-cutting constantly like they do in a lot of star wars films a lot of modern day action films like that i mean even we see that with mission impossible movies or dark knight rises has an epic three three plot line cross-cutting sequence at the end of it i wish we could just spend like 20 minutes straight with emperor palpatine luke but Let's get to the production of this film for a little bit. So we have another new director, like I said earlier, Richard Marquand. And although Lucas's first choice was Steven Spielberg, their separate feuds with the Directors Guild led to his being banned from directing the film. So Spielberg could not direct this movie. Lucas approached David Lynch, who had re- David Lynch, who had recently been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Director for *Elephant Man* in 1980, to helm *Return of the Jedi* he even took him on a tour for the set and all the props and everything and, and david lynch was like come on i don't know what this is i don't know anything about this i'm not have, doing this have you ever seen the david lynch interview where yeah. he talks about yeah. it yeah. <laughs> he he said that he said that he had a meeting with lucas and he drove him around in his ferrari like speeding through the norcal and then they and then he said lynch said that george lucas started talking about ewoks and then lynch said he got he started getting this massive headache <laughs> and he ran to a telephone booth and called his agent he said i can't do this <laughs> pretty funny story it's probably the wrong way to approach david lynch yeah. any other like young <laughs> hudshot director yeah for sure oh this ferrari's sick but david yeah. lynch is like get me out of this car <laughs> <laughs> i just need to be in a diner right now smoking a cigarette <laughs> so lynch declined saying that he had next to next to zero interest to direct the film david Koenberg was also offered the chance to direct but he declined the offer to make Videodrome and The Dead Zone instead. Awesome movies. Lamont Johnson director of Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone was also considered. Lucas eventually chose Richard Marquand. Lucas himself had admitted, admitted to being on, on the set frequently because Marquand's relative inexperience with special effects. Now, there's supposedly a lot of drama on the set between these two guys. Lucas praised Marquand as a very nice person who worked well with the actors. That sounds like a very nice statement. (laughs) Marquand did note that Lucas kept a conspicuous presence on set, joking. It is rather like trying to direct King Lear with Shakespeare in the next room. According to a magazine interview with Irvin Kirshner, who directed Empire Strikes Back... In May 2004, Kirshner states that Richard Marquand didn't direct all of this movie. It was Kirshner's assistant director and George Lucas who took over after the actors and actresses didn't respond very well to Marquand. The relationship between Marquand and George Lucas was said to be bad. On the DVD commentary, however, George Lucas claims he worked quite well with Marquand. There's even rumors where Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill had terrible experiences with Marquand in the director's chair, whereas... Harrison Ford was basically propped up like the superstar that he is by Marquand on set the entire time. Principal photography was beset with numerous delays and clashes between executive producer George Lucas and director Richard Marquand, the former wanting to use multiple cameras during each take so he could have more material in the editing room and the latter wanting to only use one or two cameras with no fallback option. The filmmakers inadvertently used old film stock that caused many shots to have a bizarre blue tint, which forced Industrial Light and Magic to fix the color timing on many shots in post-production. At a certain point, Lucas essentially took over the majority of directing duties from Marquand. Cinema Alan Hume, however, angered over George Lucas' treatment of director Mar- Richard Marquand, informally stepped down during production from his duties, leaving camera operator Alec Mills to finish filming in the last month of production. I'm sorry, which one did you say preferred the multiple cameras setup? George, George preferred the multiple so that he could have more work to work with. Mm-hmm. That's actually how Ridley Scott films. He actually uses up to 12 cameras at a time for just simple scenes and. Uh, You can do it real easily with digital now, with film, it was probably much more complex and having all so many reels of footage of film was probably very difficult to, to manage. I think this makes a lot of sense in terms of how the film looks, especially when you consider that there are three people directing it at certain points. Yeah, that's pretty chaotic. And so the film, my biggest thing with the film is that Empire was so visually stunning and well shot. So well phot- photographed by the DP, who was Cronenberg's DP, we mentioned in the last episode. And it's just, I think it's the best shot Star Wars movie of all time. It's really, really well framed. The lighting, cinematography, the blocking, it's just really craftsmanship to the nines. Whereas this one, and it was such a step up from A New Hope because they had the better production and more money to put into the, the visuals. And so I thought, I was, I assume like Return would be. Another step up, like it's going to be even more beautiful. And I think that that's one of my biggest issues with the film is it's not really beautifully beautiful looking. Uh, the cinematography is pretty simple and pretty basic, other than the visual effects sequences, which are still stunning. But in terms of the framing, uh, the it doesn't really have the same feel that Empire has. It doesn't have that epic nature. I don't even think they shot it anamorphic like they did the second one, which is like which is why the second one is like super wide screen and just looks stunning. Um, the lighting is—it just seems not that artistic compared to the real creativity they put into the first film. And then we actually we actually rewatched this the other day or yesterday, and, it, and the movie was playing, and I hadn't seen it for a few years. And the movie was playing, and there was this weird color lighting grading tint to yeah, it. Yeah, there was some issues yeah, with and, color, and we were like, "Is this something wrong with the TV? Is it the picture quality? <laughs> Are we, do we have some weird color setting on the television?" And then we just like gave up and then we continued watching it and then at, it was the the, the job Jabba, palace scene is where the color was really like extremely 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 contrasty very warm very flary a lot of reds yeah. were popping reds and blues Gamma was, yeah uh, yeah it was all over the place and it was distracting and i suppose it's a it's because of the the film stock that they were using and then literally the next scene it was a much balanced, much more balanced image, so they'd probably change the film stock. But there, you could pin, point out a couple of other sequences where that old film stock was used, and it is quite distracting. So I think the lack of a uh, creative direction is ultimately why the visual filmmaking, cinematography, the lighting doesn't really hold up compared to Empire and. George Lucas fired his friend and producer of the previous two Star Wars movies, Gary Kurtz, before production began on Return of the Jedi, although some sources say he simply quit on his own. Their relationship had deteriorated during the making of The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, when the movie went wildly over budget and fell behind schedule. With Lucas self-funding both movies as independent productions, he opted to part company with Kurtz, in taking in favor of taking an active executive producer credit duty himself to ensure the movie stayed under budget because just like in the empire strikes back lucas did put up the entire budget of Return of the Jedi. This is the first movie to gross over $20 million in its opening weekend at the box office. On a budget of $32 million, it grossed $475 million globally, again funded completely by George Lucas on his own. And yes, $20 million doesn't sound like that much. And if you adjust for inflation, it's still like below $50 million. But you gotta, you gotta remember there are so few theaters back then, so few places to actually see a movie so it, that's why making that much money was such a big deal for the film. And, and, and back then it wasn't so crazy to go to the box office the first weekend to go yeah. see a movie the first weekend. Weekends, like- opening weekends weren't what they are now. Like this movie, so many others, they just made boatloads of cash from playing for a year in theaters and just getting so many butts in seats. Not in a, in a two-week period, but – over a 52 week period so it's much different landscape way fewer films were being made every year now it seems like a thousand movies come out every year and you, they gotta make all their money in the first two weeks or else it's a bust yeah basically that's why the opening weekend is so important these days the original script had the creation of leia as luke's twin sister in this film many ideas from the original script were left out or changed however for instance the ewoks were going to be wookiees in this film and the Millennium Falcon was to be would be used in the arrival at the forest moon of Endor following the defeat of the Emperor. The film was originally intended to end with Obi Wan Kenobi and Yoda returning from life from their spectral existence in the Force, along with Anakin Skywalker. Thanks to Yoda being able to prevent him from becoming one with the Force, they would then join the rest of the characters in their celebration on Endor, which would have been really interesting. Let's to- party! <laughs> we're back! And the Wookiee thing with the Ewoks is they realized that because the Wookies were so technologically savvy and advanced, it wouldn't make sense that they were living on Endor on a forest planet in such primitive mm. means without technology, so that's why they changed it to a different creature with with Ewoks because Chewie's wicked smart and he knows components and technology and everything. He knows some components, bro. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey Chewie, you got some components like here. Chewy, you got, can you figure this out? Chewie, what are you, <laughs> from Brooklyn? Yeah, this is the Brooklyn you, space you're, man. you're the queen <laughs> spaceman. Yeah, I'm going to Sal's Pizza after this guy. <laughs> uh, Chewie could do the electrical work of your house, basically, whereas an Ewok <laughs> couldn't. <laughs> and you, you do get to see tease of that in uh, revenge of the sith where the w- w- wookies are involved in that battle and they're using a ton of great technology even though they don't wear clothes they are technologically advanced people creatures right, yeah, and so this this film also did an, another important thing in the star wars franchise which they in the original trilogy which there was a severe lack of and they kind of it's, like righted it slightly a little bit so quick question in the first two star wars movies in A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Can you name how many female characters can you name? Leia and that admiral, admiral who's in that big meeting. I don't know her name. That's not that's in the Return of the Jedi. That's in Return. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Um, (laughs) Shit. Return of the. So a New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. There are pretty much just two female characters. There's Princess Leia, obviously, and Leia, and then. Aunt Beru, Luke's aunt. That's pretty much it for female characters that have lines or are notable or are like... Significance on the plot. Significance on the screen, on the plot. That's it. And Aunt Beru is in like one scene, two scenes. You're right. So Return of the Jedi... Introduce another female character, finally, Mon Mothma. So there's a, a tremendous lack of woman in the Star Wars original trilogy, which I think they've done a great job of writing in the new Force Awakens trilogy as making female characters very prominent in the films as, as prominent as male characters yeah. because they're yeah. hardly, hardly in the first three films. And actually, there are several women amongst the rebel pilots Seen during the briefing aboard Home 1, you can see them behind Lando's shoulder in conversation with Han. They're ready to get in jets and and X-wings and start fighting. However, they never appear in the actual sequence, though at least three were known to have filmed cockpit scenes for the battle. One of these actresses did survive into the final cut. One of the A-wing pilots is actually a woman, however she was redubbed as a male actor. The most significant cut was French model and actress Vivian Chandler, who played an unnamed female X-wing pilot later named Derivio Bold. She, what made her cut surprising was it appeared that she would have played a significant role in the battle, as she recovered over, as she recorded over a full page of dialogue. Footage of her in the cockpit of her X-wing recently resurfaced, indicating she was amongst the pilots to assault the Death Star. In her dialogue in which she makes a distress call about a fatally damaged stabilizer, suggests she would have been killed after crashing, much like Red Leader had in Star Wars in 1977. It's unclear exactly why all of these women were cut from the film, but it's been speculated there were concerns that audiences would be made uncomfortable by the thought of women being killed during a battle sequence. Hmm, I'm not sure if that's the case. Maybe they, I don't know audiences we don't know what audiences yeah. were like back then we weren't yeah. alive back then yeah i guess so. i think it's kind of a cheap excuse in my opinion yeah me too because i mean uh, there's so much flack about having a female lead jedi character in the force awakens and she gets in she gets a lot of hate online yeah. for just for being a woman jedi uh so i i don't know i think that might be the reason because you know still to this day people aren't mature enough to handle a strong woman character a strong female character or like a powerful woman uh, taking charge and so i guess i think that might be the reason it's really, but when you think about it you you can really if you're like a, if you know a lot of star wars lore you can name like three yeah female right. characters from the original trilogy that's it you know i think that ray was awesome i love her in the sequel trilogy and terrific actress I thought it was so great to have a female G- Jedi lead the the new trilogy. That's why when people get really upset about like having a, a female lead Jedi in the new yeah. Star Wars trilogy, it's like, go back and, and count. Like I said to Anthony, I asked him, how many female characters can you name from the first two movies? And he got one. Mm-hmm. One character yeah. that he could think of off the top of his head. And Daisy Ridley's amazing. She's, yeah. she's an amazing actor. And that's nothing against Anthony. It's just factual information that there's literally two. Yeah. Which is sad. It is sad. It's man. messed up. Do you ever think about that? And then they, then they filled female characters in this film and cut them out. Cut them out and then re them as males. Man. Just one redubbed as one one That's, girl as a man. male. That's crazy. Insane. That's sad. There's also another massive event in the production of this film. So it's called Black Friday. So uh for Return of the Jedi, Black Friday happened on November twenty second, 1982, barely six months before the release of Return of the Jedi, the finale of the original trilogy, George Lucas decided that roughly 100 visual effects shots, totaling an estimated four months of work and mostly taken from the film's final battle sequence, weren't complete completed to his satisfaction, and he had them all thrown out. Visual effects supervisor- 100 shots? 100 visual effects shots. And these are, yeah, entire shots. Yeah. So not frames, shots. Visual effects supervisor Ken Ralston and company all went out and got loaded after the X fell on Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Producer Howard Konzangian was left speechless at $250,000 of work in 1983 money chucked out the window. While some of the live action elements of this material wound up on the Blu-ray... In the making of Return of the Jedi ebook, none of these thrown out effects have ever seen the light of day. The crew at Industrial Light and Magic were forced to go back to the drawing board and start again from scratch, with, with many of them getting drunk, like I said, when they heard the news because there was four months of work gone. Is that what I said? And that's yeah. it, was about 100,000 feet of, of, film. of film reel that was just tossed. Man, that's crazy. I wonder, I mean, did they read? They must have redone them and they're in the new cut. It has to be, I guess, the speeder bikes, maybe. I think a lot of it was like maybe the speeder bikes the speeder or bikes, if not a lot, the A lot of the sequences. final battle. Yeah. I the mean, visual effects shots, so probably the battles and stuff like that. I mean, that. you would think that they had it under control by then, by the time it's the third film to be able to like, I mean, man. That's a problem is sometimes with visual effects is the director is not paying attention to what's happening with the CGI animators. That's nowadays been, there's so much, so little communication and so many visual effects artists. Uh, They have to do work over and over again because the director's not communicating what they want, and then when they come up with the final shot, the director's like, this isn't at all what I was envisioning. It's because of a lack of communication. Very few directors actually stay in constant communication with visual effects artists and companies as they're making the film, which I think is really ridiculous. There's really only a handful of directors who actually put in the time to even visit visual effects artists. Uh, Zack Snyder, I think, is the most notable director, he actually goes to the premises of visual effects companies, talks to all the uh, animators, make sure they're all on the same page because it saves them so much time and they're able to enact the vision of the director. But there, you'd be surprised how many directors don't even like really put that much work into Communicating with visual effects artists, Denis Villeneuve is a big yeah. Guy he's like a big too. one too. Yeah. You can tell from watching Arrival and Dune and all these and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He's very involved with the visual effects and constant communication with them. If you read any of the story about their filmmaking process, he has great relationships with his production designers and visual effects artists. He uses a lot of the same ones over and over again. Well, speaking of the speeder bike, since that's one of your favorite sequences in the visual effects shots of that, so the point of view shots for the speeder bike sequence were achieved by having a camera operator with a steadicam walk through the forest at normal speed with the camera filming at one frame per second when the footage was played back at 24 frames per second it gave the appearance of flying through the forest at high speeds speeder bike pass by effects were done by splicing together the thunder splicing together thunder (laughs) thunder sounds tough word thunder with those of a p38 airplane so basically a very slow frame rate for your film and then just playing it back at normal speed. It's really simple. It's really simple filmmaking and it looks terrific. The POV shots look so amazing going through that Redwood Forest. And I love the Redwood Forest sequence. I think it's just so great to see. Uh, Lucas was very smart where every film has a big set piece in the location that is completely different in terms of the landscape of the environment. You go from desert to Arctic tundra to Redwood Forest. And it's just brilliant to see the visual language of the environments change because you're going on different planets, so the planets should look starkly different from one another. And I think he did. Oh, he's always done a great job of imagining how different planets can be. And in The Empire Strikes Back, we talked about how George Lucas froze Han Solo and Carbonite because no one was sure if Harrison Ford was going to come back for the third film. So they froze his character in a story arc so that if they had to bring him back or if they could, they could... But if not, then yeah, he's just frozen. Then Mandel forever. gets him. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did Howard Kazanjian? get Harrison Ford back for the film. We talked about how last episode he was in the Empire episode he was the one who convinced him. So Howard is quoted as saying, I played a very important part in bringing Harrison back for Return of the Jedi. Harrison, unlike Harry Fisher and Mark Hamill, signed only a two-picture contract. That is why he is frozen in carbonite in The Empire Strikes Back. When I suggested to George we should bring him back, I distinctly remember him saying that Harrison would never return. I said that if I convinced him to return. I said, what if I convinced him to return? George simply replied that we would then write him into Jedi. I had just recently, recently negotiated this deal for Raiders of the Lost Ark with Phil Gersh and the Gersh Agency. I called Phil, who said he would speak with Harrison. When I called back, Phil was on vacation! David, his son, took the call, and we negotiated Harrison's salary, which Anthony brought. Last I knew time. it. That's how, the, how big was that salary. That's 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 what the big part was. You know, you know, David was like, "Oh man, it's a lot of zeros." <laughs> when Phil returned to the office several weeks several weeks later, he called me back and said, "I had taken advantage of his son in the negotiations. I had not, but agents are agents. And they also almost killed Han Solo." in the third act of Return of the Jedi. Ford suggested that Han Solo be killed through self-sacrifice rather than now his son kills him. (laughs) (laughs) Straight up patricide. (laughs) Writer Lawrence Kasdan concurred, saying it should happen near the beginning of the third act to instill doubt as to whether the others would survive. But Lucas was vehemently against it and rejected the concept. Gary Kurtz, who produced Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, was replaced as producer of... Return of the Jedi by Kazanjian, said in 2010 that the ongoing success of the Star Wars merchandise and toys led George Lucas to reject the idea of killing off Han Solo in the middle part of the film during a raid on an Imperial base. Luke Skywalker was also to have walked off alone and exhausted like the hero of a spaghetti western into the sunset, according to Kurtz. However, Lucas opted for a happier ending to encourage higher merchandise sales. A dance party. A bonfire party. So a celebration. <laughs> Harrison Ford himself agreed to the sentiment, saying that Lucas didn't see any future in dead Han toys. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, just, I knew it was the contract, That's man. why, yeah, the contract and the very happy ending. He got the paid. There's this great, uh, I love Harrison Ford interviews, He's so funny. He's hilarious. He's he's literally like I think the funniest actor. When he's not acting, he's just hysterical. It's just him being himself. Yeah, and he was on some talk show like Kimmel or Colbert or something, and they were asking him about the the uh, Indy Five, Indiana Jones Five, and the uh, the talk show host was like, "So have you read the script? How's the script? Is it is it good? He and do you like it?" And then Harrison Ford goes. I like the contract. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I read that. <laughs> uh, I, that's like when he was on one of those shows for Force Awakens marketing and stuff. And they're like, so what's it like being back? Are you, were you excited to get back into it? What are you getting out of the experience? He's like, I'm getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, a great interview with, uh, what's his name? the the Alden Ironbach Ein, who played... Han in, in the solo movie and he had saw him do this interview and he said he met with uh, Harrison Ford to discuss the character and just to uh, get a sense of what it's like playing him and Harrison sat down with him for like a lunch for a few hours and they chatted about it and he asked Harrison so how do you like pilot the ship is there like some a thing to it like how how do you make it so believable and ha- Harrison Ford goes it's acting. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not real. dumb <laughs> yeah, question is it's, that. It's not real. <laughs> People take acting too seriously, man. That's why I, I love Harrison. I love him. He's so funny. <laughs> it's fucking buttons everywhere. I don't know. He's like, I just do it. It's it's it's, it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the lightsabers because I think they look fantastic they in do, this yeah. movie. I think yeah. they look, look the best of the original trilogy. They did a really good job. Now, but there were actually issues because before they went into production, this film, all of the lightsabers they were using for Luke and Obi-Wan and everyone else in and, and Yoda, they had been stolen or sold. So they had to repurpose old ones. So Luke's new lightsaber is actually green. It's the first one, right? It's the first one that's yeah. green that we've seen on film. And it was actually one that luke constructed on his own we hear that by from vader and we also hear it from oh some, that would have been cool to see maybe that's like going to be an episode in like a future luke skywalker tv series or mm. something or or an episode of the mandalorian constructing his own lightsaber. luke origins after his <laughs> origins but both lightsabers that were used in this movie by darth vader and luke skywalker were repurposed from props in earlier films so they were just prop films they're practice lightsabers that they had to use from the old films because like i said they were originally stolen or just mysteriously disappeared from the set between the movies. Yeah, but once it's, once the laser sword's up there, no one's looking at the handle. Originally, the color of Luke's new lightsaber was blue, the same as the one he lost in Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. Luke can even be seen wielding a blue lightsaber in early movie trailers because, remember, when he gets his arm cut off, mm-hmm. he, get, he loses the lightsaber at the same time. And it's Obi-Wan's lightsaber, yeah, right? It's, yeah. Is it Obi-Wan? No, it's his father's oh, lightsaber. Oh, it's his father. Yeah, it's Anakin's, Anakin's, Anakin's got got light, it. a yeah. lightsaber. Um... Let me see, where was I? However, when a scene of Luke assembling and activating his new lightsaber was cut, that would have been really cool to have, George Lucas thought the audience might not understand that Luke's new lightsaber was not the same he had lost on Cloud City. To avoid the confusion, Luke decided to change the color from blue to green, making it clear that Luke was using a new lightsaber. So that's that's smart. I love the green. The entire light, the audience. Growing up, for me, the the green lightsaber, scene, it, 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 I always... Connected green lightsaber to Jedi when I was a kid same first. It was just like more 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 still than blue because the Qui-Gon's Well, yeah, Qui Gon had green. Yeah, Obi Wan had blue. Yeah I'd say Qui-Gon and then return because there's so many there's mul- multiple lightsaber battles in this film as opposed to the um, Fewer in the first one, but the lightsaber fights are great. I think the the Jabba the Hut fight was awesome I would style pit and then but I think the Vader L- Vader Luke fight is terrific the choreography is a lot better they are much more physical than they are in any of the other films. It's faster. It seems much more believable. Uh, it seems, and it seems like Mark Hamill and Vader stunt double did a lot of work of prep, and they just seem very practiced, like real swordsmen. So yeah, actually, Prowse, who is the is Vader on film for the entirety of the trilogy, he didn't do the lightsaber battles. He, there was actually a stunt actor doing okay. this for him. So someone else was. In oh yeah, the I read. Uh, I read that he and they also filmed most of the battles between Luke and Vader for both sequences for both movies. They used more shots of Luke than Vader because it was very very difficult to perform the fight sequences with the mask on and, and they and couldn't the Entire suit, I'm sure. Yeah, it's hard enough to work, work out. With the COVID mask. (laughs) Imagine a Vader mask, and you're doing cardio all day (laughs) for 12 hours. a cardio, and you could hit someone in the face. And speaking of lightsabers, I have a fun fact. The blasters and lightsabers in Return of the Jedi have opposite colors for each side of the Force. For example, the Rebels have a green lightsaber and red gun lasers, and the Empire has red lightsabers and green gun lasers. Ah, interesting. I believe it's the only film that has that complete distinction. Also, one of my favorite aspects to the fight sequences is I think this is the first time we saw a Jedi bouncing a bunch of laser gun attacks and a bunch of the beam attacks in that the, the Sarlacc pit fight where Luke is just deflecting a bunch of uh, laser guns pointed at him shooting at him I think it's the it's first blasters blasters <laughs> Jesus laser guns well, laser guns <laughs> over there I love Star Wars. Someone's unsubscribing now. People are shaking their heads right now, just like (laughs) cringing through this episode because he keeps saying "lazy." Jacob's like, "Oh my god!" (laughs) But he deflects a bunch of blaster strikes in this film. I think it's. I feel like it's the first time you saw that in a Star Wars movie, which is and it looks great. It looks really good. That was one of my favorite aspects of the prequel trilogy was deflecting laser... I mean, I'm saying laser guns. <laughs> because bla- you got them at deflecting blasters. There's, uh, it's really cool. Yeah. It's awesome. And I, I I do enjoy how fast it is in the modern films, like Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon just like twirling their swords. That's the Obi-Wan show, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah in, in the prequel trilogy. But I do enjoy Mark Hamill. He's so physical with his saber fighting, especially when he's fighting those guys with the blasters. And he's his whole body's going into every block, and I I enjoy the physicality that Mark Hamill put into his sword fighting, especially the Vader fight at the end of this film when he's giving into his anger temporarily and he's bashing his saber down on Vader, cuts his hand off, then throwing his lightsaber away. Obviously, was what caused him to become a full Jedi master, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Now, how about we head on to our intermission, then we'll get into more of the film. I think that sounds wonderful. Let's do it. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast, besides using our coupon codes and telling your friends about the show, is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You get awesome perks like personalized videos, personalized messages. You get access to a weekly bonus episode for all patrons. $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons have access to our Discord where we interact with you every day. We have watch parties on there as well. $25 and $100 tier patrons get their own custom episode. You pick the topic and we do it for you. $100 tier patrons also get their own personal watch party. You are an executive producer on the main episodes of the show. You hear your name at the end of the credits, as well as after three months of being a $100 tier chosen one patron, you get to come on the show for a guest segment. Patreon allows us to do the show full time. It's how we can get all this content out for you every week. So thank you so much for your support. Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our good friends at manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. I highly recommend getting the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer, which is basically a lightsaber, X Wing, Battleship, Death Star for your grooming needs. Has a 7,000 RPM motor wireless charger built-in flashlight you can use this thing in the shower it's waterproof it's incredible skin safe highly highly recommend it for your grooming needs they also launched their boxer briefs 2.0 which are incredibly comfortable they got a little extra space for your junk as well so you'll be walking around floating on clouds just like in the cloud city their Platinum 4.0 collection is the best deal they offer right now. The lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is included in the collection, as well as the Weed Whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, ultra premium body wash, two in one shampoo conditioner, deodorant, anti chafing ball deodorant, ball spray toner, boxer briefs, and a shed travel bag. Head on over to Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping. On your entire order worldwide. This episode is also sponsored by our great friends at movieposters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 at movieposters.com to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of basically every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as also all sorts of poster options like framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are. They got you covered. We have a bunch of these awesome posters on our set. James's Revenge of the Jedi poster is sick. I love that one. We got Jaws. I got Lawrence of Arabia, La Dolce Vita, a bunch of amazing movie posters. They send us whatever we want, which is very nice. So if you need posters, there's only one place to get them, and that's at movieposters.com. And don't forget to use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. Now let's head into our intermission. Begin with the movie quote competition, sir. I have, uh, it's two characters. Mrs. Vaughn is satisfied with the dress. No one gives a tinker's Jeez, fucking cur- Can I say the sorry. quote? Can I say it? No one gives a tinker's fucking curse about Mrs. Vaughn's satisfaction. <laughs> That's a good one. It's <laughs> Phantom Thread. This guy. Reynolds Woodcock. <laughs> Sorry. I love that, I love that movie. Uh, film bro over here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was being very impatient. <laughs> we have a quote from a fan from Brayden. Brayden. Our pal Brayden. All right, ready? One second. Okay. This is two characters as well. Biker bar, huh? What goes on down she <laughs> alright? Drop the, uh, the Revenge of the Jedi <laughs> sign. Hold on. There's a lot of stuff going on over here. Uh, yeah, it's kind of... We're good. You got it. For now. Alright, ready? So two characters. Biker bar, huh? What goes on down there? I don't know. Listen to Jim Croce. Play, d- uh, play darts. Whatever the hell else you white people do. Hmm. Sounds like a... Is that like an ice cube line? No, not an ice cube. Kevin Hart? No. I don't know. It's Snoop Dogg and oh. Starsky and Hutch. That's <laughs> <I> <gonna laughs> Huggy Bear. I, I, I was going to say Starsky and Hutch, but I was like, I totally forgot about Huggy Bear. Yeah. Good one. It's good. Thanks, Braden. Great quote. I love that movie. Yeah. Do you have a quote or no? No, I just wanted to use Braden's. All right, cool. Yeah. All All right, right. I thought it was really funny. Guess this movie release year. Punch Drunk Love. 2004. 2002. Damn it. Darn it. Darn it. Okay. What year did the original Dune come out? 1984. Correct. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't have done a Dune question. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> How you Dune? All right, movie pop quiz time. Paul Thomas Anderson, who is the theme of my intermission, has directed several music videos for bands including Radiohead. Can you name another band or musician he has made a music video for? Haim. There you go. That's the easy one. Haim. Yeah. Obviously, uh, one of the actresses, the main actress from Liquor's Pizza is the guitarist. Alana. In yeah, Alana yeah. Alana. He also, with his with his ex-girlfriend, he made a few of her music videos. What's her name? Joanna, New- Joanna Newsom or no. Fiona Apple? Fiona Apple. Yeah, yeah he's, he's actually done a few of hers. And also Michael Penn. So I, I would have accepted, who my, Michael Penn is. accepted any four of those answers. His Radiohead ones are really great. And Tom York uh, made a solo album, and PTA did a great, like 10 minute short film for it. And it's really incredible. And he also made a great music video for Radiohead where Tom York is moving through dozens and dozens and dozens of environments and rooms. And every time he, he enters a room, he walks through a door, and that puts him into a different space. Finds another door that puts him into another space. It's really terrific. That was off their uh, their like album back in like 2018, right? Yeah, it was. It was it's, a, it's a pretty recent one, maybe yeah, five or six years ago, I'd say. But he's, huh. yeah, he's made some great music videos. Yeah. Great catalog. All right, what do we got for? I got yeah, a there's... quiz question for you. Oh, you got a quiz. I'm sorry. What director almost made a Dune adaptation? Came very close to it. Oh, what's his name? Freaking. Uh... How do you say I can't Paterasky or I don't know? Freaking, what's his name? Olivia's gonna be so disappointed. <laughs> she sends me videos for this guy's oh, uh, yeah, vision of what he had. Yeah, it's it, there's a documentary on it, something at Adaski's. I don't know, Jodorowski, Jodorowski, yeah. yeah, Alejandro Jodorowski, Jodorowski. That's the name yeah he did the Holy mountain and a bunch of other surrealist bizarrest movies he he did a lot he got a lot of um artwork done in concept art for his interpretation of Dune. would would have been pretty mm-hmm. trippy yeah although I don't think um fans of the book would have loved it. I don't think so either' it's pretty... because he was changing a lot yeah it, but I mean hey it's very artistic so I mean mm-hmm. go for it uh what do we got for our haters this week on subscribes we got some unsubscribes we got some these are some pretty good ones this week ready. <laughs> Gus Orlando, the Punisher Frank Castle was a Marine, not a Navy SEAL. Unsubscribe. Actually, pal, Uh-oh. he was both. Oh, really? According to Marvel.com, Frank Castle was both a Marine and a Navy SEAL. Appreciate you. You uh, unsubscribe for me, <laughs> no, So no, you better <laughs> resubscribe. subscribe <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, Gus. Appreciate you. I I responded to him on YouTube too, and then uh, Caleb. Caleb called us out because Amanda and I couldn't couldn't name five actors who played two (laughs) superheroes. He's like, he said he immediately thought of America's Ass, Steve Rogers. (laughs) That's why I was like, I was so shocked you two didn't get that one. (laughs) And then that's it for our unsubscribes this week. We have a great five star review from J Roman, ten ninety, high quality library of episodes. Thanks. Found these guys on TikTok. I really enjoy the variety of episodes. Thanks, pal. That's it. It's very simple, to the point. Very appreciated. Thank you so much for the review. And thank you, TikTok, for fighting all of our fans for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're happy to be back. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be back. We have a very special Godfather Patreon shout-out. Kynan Clark, thank you so much for becoming a Godfather Patreon. <laughs> if we made you an offer you couldn't refuse. The day of our Return of the Jedi episode, <laughs> you became a Godfather <laughs> Patreon. They've been... Such a big follower of ours and supporter for, like, it seems like for, like, years. Yeah, since I, the I, yeah the show. I've, I see his, his handle all the time in comments and, and Appreciate messages. Appreciate the support yeah. and the interactions and the shares. So we're very appreciative and grateful for you becoming a Godfather patron, pal. And they chose Eric Bana's film, The Dry. which I've is, been meaning to watch this. Yeah, it looks. I've, I remember seeing the trailer years ago, and it does look really fun. I love Australian films. Peter Ware is one of my favorite directors, so I can't wait to check this out. Years ago when it came out in 2020. <laughs> it came out in 2020? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was longer. No, no. I'm, oh, I'm, wow. I'm pretty damn sure. Let me double check. Let me double check. I thought it was let like me, let me check. five years ago. The Dry movie. The Dry. 2021, it was last year. Oh, wow. So according to Anthony, that's years ago. Whatever, man. I remember back when I was a kid, I saw the trailer. What, years could be two years, <laughs> three years? I thought it was like three years ago. Give Stop giving me a hard time, man. I'm just busting your butt. I your unsubscribe chocolate. from you. <laughs> <laughs> On this day... In film and TV history today is September 5th. In 1916, Intolerance, the silent film directed by D.W. Griffith, is released, which is ironic because he made the most <laughs> intolerant and racist, racist movie of all That's time with, say. with the birth of a nation the year before, 1915. We should cover that sometime. Uh, 1941, Citizen Kane is released. In 1976, The Muppet Show premiered on television with Mia Farrow as the guest star really she was the first star very first star of the show what well what a great guest to have on it's really cool in 1992 batman the animated series premiered in 2008 the wrestler is released in 2017 it is released and happy birthday to raquel welch michael keaton rose mcgowan and patty constantine can't wait to see him house of the the dragon. dragon Comes out next week. We would have already seen it. Oh, yeah. We we loved it. we am filming this a couple weeks ahead of schedule. (laughs) So, yeah, Patty Constantine was great in House of the Dragon. Hopefully, he's not dead already. Terrific actor. Uh, My streaming recommendation for this episode is Collateral, which just got added onto Netflix. Michael Mann's excellent crime thriller starring Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Excellent pick. Thanks, man. I recommend Capote, which just got added to HBO Max. It's a terrific film by Bennett Miller about the famous writers' interactions with the men convicted of murder in the cold in cold blood books trial starring philip seymour Hawk the great Ryan. philip got seymour the oscar B- for that won one. an oscar for it yeah it's a really really good movie i remember watching that like years ago when you told me about it yeah yeah this was benet miller's first movie it was like 2005 yeah around then 2004 i think all right let's get back into star wars episode six the return of the jedi this film takes place one year after the empire strikes Back And also takes place five years before the first season of the Mandalorian. Now, where was Luke during this time period? We don't really know unless you get into the lore in the comics and the graphic novels and some of the video games. They touch on the adventures that Luke was getting on. But it doesn't seem like he returned to Yoda in this time period based off the dialogue in yeah. Return of the Jedi. So he didn't go back to train with Yoda in this year period, this year gap, it's basically... Sorry, tra- yeah. I'm sorry. That always confused me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, oh, he's never been back to Yoda in all this time. So th- when I was a kid, I always got confused about Yoda revealing this info to him right now, even though it's been so much lo- exactly. so many, so so long. So he didn't return to Dagobah to train with Yoda. And so basically, his, his adventures are different. And also, you can assume that he did a lot of planning to rescue Han from Jabba the Hut because that was a pretty intricate plan after Leia and... Uh, Lando's plan did not work out. So, But how did Luke's powers increase? He's not exactly a Jedi Master yet, as Yoda tells him. He has to face Darth Vader to finally become a Jedi Master, even though Luke thinks he's one right now. But how did he become more powerful with the Force, a better lightsaber, lightsaber fighter? You can assume that for him he's just been training on his own. A better or, laser gun blocker. <laughs> a better laser gun blocker. Or if he's, not been, if he's been training on his own, maybe he's also been getting training from... Obi-Wan Kenobi's Force Ghost. You know, that's definitely a possibility. We could also think of Luke having just natural, innate power with the Force that is unusually strong. You could even say he's naturally more gifted than even his father, Anakin Skywalker, with the Force, who was a prodigy, who was very powerful for his age and his experience. You could consider it to be more instinctual based for him in his powers and his growth of using the Force. And Like I said, a lot of the canon uh, depict what happened between this time period and... And I think it's just—you don't have to explain too much, but it's, I think, important to note that he didn't go back to Dagobah to train with Yoda. Yeah, and I, they did that because they need to have the the dialogue of Luke asking him about his father. I think it's a great—it is a great moment of Yoda revealing, your father, he is. You know, you gotta, you gotta have that line in there. So, obviously, Lucas was like, okay— we're just gonna act like he didn't go back there because Yoda would he would have asked Yoda that the first time he saw him, which he does exactly, and, and that's the entire reason why Yoda's in this film. He wasn't in the original script for Return of the Jedi, but they needed to clear make that clear distinction of Luke hearing it from Yoda that Darth Vader is his father. So Mark Quan strongly felt that returning to Dagobah was essential to resolve the dilemma. Raised in the previous film for this, so Lucas actually inserted the scene that Yoda converts to Va- confirms that Darth Vader is Luke's father after his discussion with the child psychologist, because he wanted younger moviegoers to not dismiss the fact that Vader's his father as a potential lie from the previous film and make it truth. Yeah, because even Luke, he needs he needs assurance from Yoda that this is the truth because he doesn't he he, he shouldn't just believe Vader. Because Vader's his enemy. Like he shouldn't just believe what he says. Uh, Because the dark side. You know they can trick you. And play with your emotions. To get you to turn to their side. So obviously it makes total sense for Luke to question it. And not believe Vader outright. And he gets confirmation from both Yoda. And then from Obi-Wan's Force Ghost. And I love how Obi-Wan's Force Ghost. He's like why didn't you tell me. He's like. Technically, I did. <laughs> like, technically, when you look back at the transcript, you know... Let's, look, let's read it back. Like, Vader <laughs> killed Anakin, technically, so I, I didn't lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a liar, Anakin. I'm not a liar, Luke. I just, you know, I didn't tell you everything. <laughs> technically, your dad was dead. Yeah. <laughs> it, but I like how he... I, I like that he developed his powers on his own. And I like how Luke wears black in this, in this film and the color changes of his outfits from film to film is actually a really terrific metaphor for his growth as a person in maturity where first film he wears all white second film he's wearing gray and then in the last film he's wearing black these are the him developing as a, as an adult and becoming more mature as he becomes more focused and honed in on the on the force and becoming a jedi and also the black uniform the black outfit it is a connection to Vader. Vader wears black, and show so it shows that, I, I feel like the black outfit, when you look at Luke, because he doesn't wear the black outfit in the films after this, I feel like it, it kind of hits. Mandalorian. To, in the, okay, Mandalorian. So in the films, he's wearing the beige cloak, because I feel like that's more of a balanced color, whereas this film, him wearing black, I think they did that on purpose, because it makes the audience subconsciously think he could still be turned. He's the only Jedi wearing... Jedis don't normally wear black, not that I'm aware of. Anakin wore black, so it's very similar to that outfit where... And I think it just subconsciously with the audience, when they see Luke wearing black, it shows that, like, he could still be turned, and there's that risk of that happening. So I like the black outfit, plus it looks sick. I think it's great for marketing purposes as well. They did the same thing with Ray with uh, the, rise, the Rise of Skywalker, with the advertising where it makes it seem like... Oh, will they be tempted by the dark side of the force? That was such a that that was such a fake tease. I didn't yeah, like that. that. that I was, didn't like that. That was like the event uh, Avengers die, Ultron with all the Avengers dying yeah. and Ultron standing above them. It's like this that was just a dream. It was a cheap thing. Yeah, to it's, do. It's, it's just yeah. like a oh, what if because she, she, it would have been cool if, yeah. Ray, if Ray went to the dark side. That would have been would have been interesting. That would have been so cool. And then, so and then cool. Kylo's the good guy. Well, I still think Kylo should have just stayed the bad guy, but I still we'll, think we'll Finn, get into the sequel. I still eventually. think Finn should have been a Jedi, but, I mean, yeah. it is what it is. But, yeah, Rey having the double red lightsaber and then throwing it down, and she's got, like, red eyes. I was like, whoa, in the trailer. And then in the movie, I was like, oh, it was just, like, a two-second stream <laughs> It's for the trailer, man. They got you, man. <laughs> Thanks, guys. They're, they're pretty smart. Now, Luke's uh, final... A visit to Dagobah is really important because this is where Yoda dies, obviously, but he's told important things from both Yoda and then also from Obi-Wan's Force Ghost from on Yoda's deathbed as he's tucking him in with the blanket. It's very <sighs> cute and endearing, but he's telling him, you know, Luke, you don't need any more training. But you're not a Jedi yet. You're not a Jedi until you confront Darth Vader. That's the final thing you need to do to become a Jedi Master. Even though Luke says, so I am a Jedi Master. He's like, no, you're not. So you're not not one yet. You have to confront Vader. Even though Luke doesn't want to. He's like, he's almost afraid to face him. He doesn't want to face him. He doesn't want to fight his father. He doesn't want to kill his father or be killed by his father. And then Obi-Wan's, what he tells him is a different thing. He says, he's giving more exposition on... What happened to his father? Your father was seduced by the dark side. That's why you can't. His father's more machine now than he is man, which is why I think there's a great shot in the battle uh, between Luke and Vader at the end of the film after Luke cuts off his hand and he's about to kill Vader. Then he sees Vader's mechanical wiring coming out of his wrist, and Luke's like, oh, he's like me. I, I'm I'm turning into my father. If I do this, I don't want to become what he's become. So that's when he decides to put the, the saber down. Yeah, it was the ultimate test, and if he him passing that test is what makes him a Jedi Knight. And and again, you all know we we don't know the lore, the TV series, the the novelizations. So I'm just going based on my interpretation of just the movies. Is I suppose Jedi's to become a Jedi. The final step is to encounter uh, their b- biggest confrontation biggest conflict within themselves their fear yeah and passing that that trial and so for luke his his trial and his his trial by fire basically is uh rejecting his father and rejecting the dark side and the temptation in that moment so i I suppose every jedi must have some kind of final confrontation they need to uh, accomplish and overcome to prove themselves of being jedi knights yeah, I think you're right, probably. The plot of this film, it's it's pretty solid. We have the new Death Star Construction 2.0. And the DS 2.0. Yeah, and this Death Star is actually 460% larger than the first Death Star. Oh, so it's bigger, So it's Death Star Deluxe. Deluxe. And it's under construction, and the Empire and the Emperor want the Rebels to think that it's non-functioning, but it secretly is functioning, and they're luring the Rebels into this big trap to go to Endor, which em- the Emperor made sure they got the information that the moon base on Endor had the generator, sh- the shield generator controls, which he wanted them to go there so he could take them out. I like the plan by the Emperor. I think it's terrific. It's clever how he lured them all in there. It, it makes sense. And I think it, it, to be able to, because if you do it again where the rebels find the Death Star and the rebels. Figure it out on their own. It might have been too re- redundant. So to have them being led there by the Emperor, I think, was very smart. And I really like seeing the interactions between Vader and the Emperor here. We got more Emperor. We got Emperor in the flesh rather than just through the holograms, which is awesome, or through screens. So it's really cool to see Ian McDiarmid in the makeup, in the wardrobe as Emperor Palpatine. And his voice is so, so memorable and so terrific. And it was actually not the plan. So the plan originally for the Emperor with Ian McDiarmid was they were going to film him for all the scenes normally, but then they were going to dub his voice with the voice of the actress who played the emperor in Empire Strikes Back. And we talked in our last episode that it was uh, an older actress played the emperor in the hologram with a bunch of prosthetics on and she did the voice. So the plan was to film Ian McDiarmid basically as the body double of Emperor Palpatine, and then they were going to dub her voice over it. But then Ian McDiarmid, he came up with this terrific voice, he used like gut, guttural techniques and uh, basically like breathing with his stomach to create this really deep, low, growly voice. And then once Lucas and the filmmakers heard this voice from McDermott, they decided, you know what, this is a terrific voice. It suits the character he, and it, the performance so much better. So they they ended up using his voice. The opening of this movie too, with the Jabba the Hut, Jabba's palace sequence, is pretty gr- it's great but i think it can get a little long in it's the quite opening long, it's yeah. like 15 minutes of job and his just standing around and his henchmen. yeah it, or he's just like slugging around get it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, at first i remember we were watching it, these like thank god these movies were a hit because this could have been a big could've miss been terrible could have been bad but it's like 15 minutes of like the jazz band yeah and the singing and i get he's trying to make the mood the tatooine the cantina vibe and everything like that but i think that that sequence drags on a little bit too long without like <laughs> leia there as the bounty hunter with chewie that's cool and then she she frees han and reveals herself to be leia that was really awesome and then but before but even before luke gets there it's like all right let's speed this up lucas yeah. there's a little much of the campy aliens everywhere the the jazz cantina sequence but When Luke shows up, it's pretty great. The battle against the Rancor was really fun. While attempting to film Luke Skywalker's battle with the Rancor Beast, George Lucas sought to have the Rancor played by a stunt performer inside of a practical suit a la Godzilla. However, the production team made several attempts but were unable to create an adequate result. Lucas eventually relented and decided to film the Rancor as a high-speed puppet, it looks great. It looks solid. It lo- I think it still holds up, and it, it looks it looks better than a lot of CGI these days. I think so. But I agree. So the one of the reasons why I'm not a, a big lover of this film is because it is quite slow, and it is it can be quite boring, especially the first forty minutes. I think if they got to the Starlock pit battle much faster, it would be a tighter script. But I feel like they got to that fight at like minute forty, almost maybe third. Kind of feels like yeah. between thirty and forty minutes they're fighting at the like Pit, and the entire Jabba's Palace sequence was very. It's very long, and I think there's a lot of unnecessary stuff. I just feel like, and a lot of like watching it doesn't have the rewatch value as Empire. Like Empire's first thirty minutes is terrific. You get Luke getting attacked by the. The be- the Beast and being saved by Han. You, the then Wampa. You, the Wampa. Then you get the epic battle, the Arctic Tundra battle. And, that's it. and all that happens in, in the same amount of time as the Jabba and Starlock Pit battle. In the same amount of time. But like the f- Empire is so entertaining, so incredible. And then Return, the first 40 minutes, is just kind of like a slog. And you're like, oh, let's let's wrap it up, guys. Everyone's just, <laughs> everyone's just standing around talking, and like, can we get a little little some things going on? And the, I think the, also the the restrictive nature of the environments, there's uh, not that it's not that visually stunning. It's just pretty restrictive and small in scope. And I think that it, 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 I think it would have worked stronger to start with a big action sequence. Just speed it up. Yes, yeah, get get let's get there faster. Let's hurry it up. Now, Jabba the Hot puppet took stuart freeborn's team three months to build and cost five hundred thousand dollars to make it also weighed two thousand pounds and took six people to operate he's very funny yeah the job is hilarious <laughs> rah, 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 rah. <laughs> so gross just like he just like grabs the little creatures in his bowl and he's just eating it. like he he cracks me up it's super gross yeah. but also he's he's an interesting character because he's he's actually highly intelligent yeah and he, and we get this instance of Jedi mind tricks don't don't work on Jabba. So I like the character of Jabba. I think he's a a really cool concept. Yeah, he's just a really nice guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> just an interesting villain that like you ke- the even the Jedi can't manipulate. I love when Leia frees Han from the carbonite. It's a really cool visual effects sequence, glowing and then falling, and then you can't see and everything. But it's so funny when <laughs> they save Lando Lando. gets No, but before that, before. <laughs> Right when he gets freed, and then the curtain draws, and Joppa and his crew, they're just like They're laughing. all just chilling. <laughs> so long. I like to imagine, like, they're behind the curtain, like, shh, shh don't, don't say anything. It's Be like, careful. they're right a, there. It's like a scary movie with Scarface, <laughs> yeah. like, hiding behind the couch. Where am I? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> you're, you're behind the couch. No, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. Hold oh, on, turn around, turn around. <laughs> I like to imagine, it's just like, were they, really, like, whispering and giggling to themselves while Han and Leia were talking? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) on the other side of the curtain (laughs) it's really great it's super funny luke and vader both have really great entrances in this film vader's entrance is coming like through smoke and darkness but then luke has his entrance coming through a a vast beam of light behind him coming down that big ramp it's really great uh counter and shows the metaphor of good versus evil and the way that they filmed it silhouetted and in a way it kind of looks like vader and in williams he didn't use his luke's theme he used this I think the first couple notes of uh, part of uh, Vader's theme and to my, kind of make us feel like, oh, is this Vader? So we weren't even sure it was Luke at first. And also to show the temptation that Luke will be having to the dark side because he does get tempted to the dark force side. Force chokes those guys, and no problem. Palpatine is trying to push him there even further. Now, Vader, this is the only Star Wars movie where Vader does not force choke somebody, Return of the Jedi. A scene did exist In the initial cut that showed him force choke an Imperial officer in order to gain access to the Emperor's throne room, this scene was cut because George Lucas felt that this point had been made clearly enough in Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. Enough force chokes, yeah. We didn't need to do that. (laughs) Don't want (laughs) to choke on your ambitions. (laughs) The Sarlacc Pit is a lot of fun. Obviously, we have Boba Fett, who... In *The Empire Strikes Back*, he's bad. He's seems cool. Very capable and like a badass. Yeah. And I get why people really love the character. He's also like a ladies' man. But that, yeah, <laughs> But in, in the opening of this, <laughs> yeah. he's like, t- he's like, "Yeah, girl. Sit. I'll see, I'll see you later. I'll be tonight. right back, ladies. Both you, Italian ladies, <laughs> you, uh, you alien ladies. You got my room key. It's like, uh, it's, it's like he reminds me of uh, Star Lord kind of the opening of guardians the girl yeah you're right but then the sarlacc pit battle sequences he just kind of just gets messed up and then falls into the sarlacc like he he does put up a bit of a fight where he does rat he wraps up luke in his in his rope and stuff but he kind of i i'm not a fan of how he accidentally gets killed by han accidentally hitting him unknowingly with uh, the back of his jetpack yeah so back to the emperor too though i think Such a great character, and we really should do like an entire analyzing evil episode on him because his plan is his plan is so clever of luring the rebels to his trap, but also he's luring Vader into a trap basically too, where he wants to have Luke become his new apprentice, even though he's saying Vader's saying like, "I'll we'll convince him to join the dark side, and we'll all be together in a happy family together, just doing evil stuff." (laughs) There can only be two sits. yes you're right yeah so palpatine is using vader to lure luke to him to convert luke to the dark side and then he wants luke to he wants to replace vader with luke as his new apprentice he's just like sick of working with vader (laughs) that's like basically tom brady and belichick (laughs) belichick's like i'm trying to find a new quarterback man vader you're just like so serious all the time (laughs) that's his main goal so Emperor Palpatine's super intelligent, very clever. He's got two intense plans working in sync together. Yeah, and in contrast, Vader originally planned for him and Luke to take down the emperor mm-hmm. and empire. And I suppose you could argue that Luke is more powerful than Vader ever was because Palpatine wants him over Vader. Exactly. So that's a that's the biggest indicator that Luke possesses more power with the Force than Vader ever than Anakin ever did. It's very similar to when we watched the first sequence of in Revenge of the Sith where Anakin saves Palpatine from the captors and he has Anakin kill the guy, just cut off his head. Do it! Do it! (laughs) So it, it, sh- it harkens to that when you watch Revenge of the Sith. You're like, oh, yeah. this is just like when Darth Vader and Luke are fighting in front of Palpatine. Like, you just see, like, the big smile on his face. Like, yes. It's like, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I love that. It's like Clearly this guy is evil. <laughs> when Anakin and Dooku fight, he does the same thing. He's like, oh, yeah, they're fighting. <laughs> He's getting off on it. <laughs> but he sees the same potential that he saw in Anakin and Luke, if not more. Yes. I, I think, yeah, I think you definitely have to. That's the ed- evidence that Luke is probably... More, probably the greatest Jedi to ever live. Most powerful, maybe? Could be, yeah. Possibly. It's possible. If if Palpatine wants him over Vader, it's, it's, he's got to be. Because he's the prophecy. Yeah. You are the chosen one! <laughs> We're going to say it at <laughs> some point. I hate you. I hate you! Uh, I have a question. Do you think that Vader, Anakin, Vader-Anakin, Vader-slash-Anakin, ended up becoming a good person? Or a hero? It's, it's such... A tough question to answer because of how many people he's helped kill how many people he's killed himself how many evil acts he's done in the how many years what's it been 20 years or something that he's been darth vader when you go from killing kids and killing entire destroying entire planets it's hard to say that that person has become a hero or a good person they've had an arc of redemption but I will never say that Darth Vader is a good guy, became a good guy, became a hero. Yes, he helped stop Palpatine, but obviously Palpatine comes back, which I thought was kind of lame. Yeah. But, you know, he has a, a moment of redemption, a small moment, a small nugget of redemption in an entire lifetime of horrific evil deeds. It's like if you had, like, uh, like Genghis Khan, like, <laughs> saved one person, you're like, you know what, you're a good guy, saved Genghis, his son. saved his son, like... <laughs> Genghis, you're not that bad of a guy. Yeah. After killing 70 million people or whatever it was, yeah. it's uh, it's pretty clear he's still a bad guy. Yeah, so I agree. I think I think maybe Vader Anakin gets a little too much forgiveness from some people because he's yes, he killed Palpatine and he did I guess fulfill his prophecy, but he's killed. You gonna say he's killed billions of people. He he like, he's pl- killed billions of people and either by orders and yeah just thousands by his own hand yeah exactly and so i would say that even though he does save, he kills palpatine to save his son so in a way it is kind of like not entirely he's doing it to save just his son not because it's the right thing to do in a lot of ways it's not so like he's not trying to bring the empire he's down not here, doing right. he's like i need to stop this all he's like i want to save my son that's how i look at that's how i look at vader killing palpatine to save luke because right? that's like the last tiny glimmer of humanity he has is being a father, uh, and that's all he has left. And so even though you know Luke has always said that there's still good in him and there that was the good in him, I still think by the end of the film, Anakin, Vader, he's still uh, a, a villain without a doubt, 100%. James Earl Jones shares the same opinion. He's like, oh, cool. I'll never say that Darth Vader was a good guy, even yeah. though what happened at the end of Return of the Jedi. Yeah, and he voiced the character. Yeah, I mean, you say, kill one guy as opposed to kill a billions of people. Like, I mean, this is pretty pretty clear difference. That's a really good point, though, and a clear distinction to make that he he killed Palpatine to save his son, not to end the empire. Yeah, even though the, the, the it's the intention of killing him. I, I the way I interpreted it is just to save Luke a huge factor in this film and such an important moment is the revelation that Leia is the other hope. She is the twin sister of Luke Skywalker. Yoda's death. He, he couldn't get that last word out. <laughs> there is another <laughs> Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> and Luke and Leia they, they once they're told the information when Luke's told he's like in Obi-Wan's like you know it to be true he's like deep down I always knew when Luke tells Leia she's like I always knew and then when you think about the kiss you're like Ugh. but again they didn't know yeah, yet just... that they were going to be siblings and twin siblings in this film so she's the other hope yeah I thought it was a great it's sold there's the great twist in Empire of Vader's reveal and then this movie had another great twist of Leia's reveal Lando Calrissian is great in this film as well. He's now a general in the Rebel forces. He's tasked with the operating the mission, leading the mission to destroy the second Death Star. And they've, you know, they've stolen that. And they, the, the other trio, the Han and Leia, they've stolen the Empire ship, and they're going into the Death Star. But Lando's a great character. He's now a big-time leader. He's a source of hope for the Rebels, and he's just an important man for the uh, attack on the Empire. And JJ did a great job in Rise of Skywalker of during that final battle, Lando is leading that group of rebels when they show up to the battle, and he's it's, just, it's so reminiscent of of him leading the battle and at of the finale of this film. So it's a lot of fun to see that in Rise of Skywalker. Now the forest moon planet Endor is full of these Ewoks, which Ewoks. Were, which are very cute. You know, these were obviously made for the younger audiences, and I think I, I responded to the Ewoks much better when I was young. Compared, I think all kids do, compared yeah. Compared to watching it now, it's, it's cute, but it, it kind of drags a little it's bit. Some pretty the, long. Some of the Ewok yeah. sequences. I think it's very funny when they when they start worshipping C-3PO. Yeah. I think that's a great moment. And such a fun fact, Warwick Davis, who's an iconic actor from, obviously, the Harry Potter franchise in, in the Star Wars world, plays an Ewok. One of the main ones. That's so great. He's He's been acting for a long time. Yeah. He's been acting for a very long time. He actually auditioned for Return of the Jedi after his grandmother heard a London radio station announce a casting call to play the Ewoks. And he recently reprised the role of playing Ewoks. I think it was with his son, too, which is really cool. I think in one of the shows yeah. recently. But he's um he has a new movie out, uh, Willow. They made a sequel to Willow and, uh, on Netflix. for So for fans of that movie, he actually reprised his role. I think... 40 years later. That's really cool. Now, the word Ewok is never actually said in Return of the Jedi, and neither were the names of the individual Ewoks, although both appear in the end credits. Ewok is derived from the indigenous American tribe, the Miwok, Indigenous to the Calif- Northern California Redwood Forest, in which the Endor scenes were shot. So that's really cool to name the creatures, the Ewoks, after the indigenous tribe that lived in that area. Ewoks were a late addition to the Star Wars mythology, like we talked about earlier. They were originally meant to be wookies However, because Chewie's such an adept technologist, I guess you would say, and with stuff he's great with um <laughs> what was laser it laser gun oh no components, components. <laughs> <laughs> they decided to change it because it wouldn't make sense because wikis are so intelligent and technologically advanced to have them living in primitive ways i wonder why we have i mean have have there been ewoks and uh any of the other movies or shows? Well, actually, one year after Return of the Jedi's release, the, the Ewoks had their own spin-off movies, uh-huh. The Ewok Adventure, 1984. Oh, yeah! You watched them! Ewoks, The Battle of Endor, we, we, in 1985. We had on VHS, I remember. In the movie, the Ewoks agree to help the Tawani siblings rescue their parents from the Gorax giant after their spaceship crashes on Endor, leaving them stranded. Man, Lucas knew what he was doing with the kids. He's like, <laughs> he knows how to sell the kids, man. Speaking of Chewbacca, Return of the Jedi is the only movie in the original, original trilogy in which Chewbacca fires his Wookiee bowcaster on Endor. A fleeing biker scout is when he fires it. Although Luke refers to it in this movie as a crossbow, Chewie's weapon was given its proper name by the author Brian Daly in Star Wars, the original radio drama in 1981. He was like, fuck Luke Skywalker. This <laughs> which is. <laughs> which was a dramatization of Star Wars. Which came <laughs> this out- is what it's called. A, you actually see that a lot at work in Force Awakens it's the gun that uh, he uses to shoot Kylo Ren to really damage him mm-hmm. and then Han uses it a few times he's like I like this <laughs> <laughs> And we got that great sequence of the Ewoks versus the troopers and walkers. It's pretty silly. I like the lo-fi battle. I love how tech, people yeah. are always like, how the hell did they beat the stormtroopers? It's it's fun. Yeah. It's campy. Yeah, I saw an interview where Lucas said uh, it was partly inspired by the Vietnam War of an invading force coming against an indigenous population and using the environment to take out that enemy. So you can definitely see the parallel there. Then we have the crosscut where they're trying to destroy the shield generator on... Endor to be able to... So that the rebels can destroy the the new Death Star. While there's also a space battle taking place above the planets. However, like we said earlier... The Death Star is completely operational, even though the Emperor wanted to make it seem like it wasn't operational. He starts blowing up ships, man. Yeah, Death Star Deluxe is on fire, man. And Emperor, Vader, Luke, this sequence is the best of the movie for sure. Finally, we get to the three of them. We've been wanting this to happen for the entire trilogy. They tease the heck out of it in Empire. We learn everything was a trap. The Emperor let the Rebels discover the Endor plan. He wants Luke to strike down Vader now and become part of the dark side and join his side just like his father did sounds a lot like razz skywalker (laughs) (laughs) take your father's place at my side and luke again like i said after he sees his father's robotic hand after he cuts it off realizes he's turning into his father he's going to turn evil he's going to join the dark side if he keeps feeding into his hate and fear like the emperor is enticing him to do throws his lightsaber down. This is the moment where he fish- officially becomes a Jedi master. Yeah, I think it's one of the best moments in Star Wars in the entire Star Wars franchise is of Luke just like throwing his saber away and then facing the emperor like a total G like I ain't joining you. And he says the line. It's one of the most iconic lines in the franchise I think where he says I'll never join the dark side. I'll be I'm a Jedi just like my father before me. That's really cool. I think that's the line that made Vader save him. Because he's like, oh, man, my son's so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, now we can't have a catch. (laughs) (laughs) We could could have a force catch. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I I love... I think the ending, even though I'm not a big fan of this movie, I think the ending is really well done. And I think it's a terrific conclusion to the trilogy. Again, I'm like you. I, I did not like seeing Palpatine back for Rise of Skywalker, but we'll get into that in the future. I think they're actually... J.J. was kind of, in a way, forced to do it with the storytelling because of The Last Jedi. It was the only thing they could come up with that quickly. And so, I think, but I think that having him just in this film, if it was just this alone, would have been so memorable. And then the scene, the, the origins of Palpatine, how he, how did he get his messed up face in, yeah. in, the, in the prequel trilogy was great. But I think Return, that's the weakest of the three, but it does a great job with this ending. I think the last 30 minutes is terrific. And we got some more glimpses at the dark side, which we still hadn't seen too much of. I love seeing the Sith lightning, the the Force lightning, you could say, from Emperor Palpatine, which was obviously has been more extensively used in the other trilogies. It was great visual effects, and it still holds up today. It's a great moment when he's using it on Luke, and that's when Darth's like, i got to do something, and saves his son and throws him into the bottom of that generator pit or whatever it is. So I, I think the, the Sith lightning is such a, a cool effect and part of the Darth Sith lore dark side powers. What makes it interesting is Palpatine's the only one that, that can do it. And then it's uh, in Rise of Skywalker, Rey destroying that ship by accident with the lightning accidentally coming out of her was a strong indicator that he was his, she was related to Palpatine, I think. Yeah. But um, it seems like something only... Palpatine maybe has figured out how to do, except for maybe his master, Darth Plagueis. Yeah, good point. And also, fun fact about Star Wars trilogy: so Wedge, Wedge's and who this is the helmet I have. He's the X-wing the pilot. pilot that he's actually also called Red Leader in this film, played by Dennis Lawson is not only one of the only other characters besides the original trio to survive all three movies in the star wars trilogy the original one he's also the uncle of ewan mcgregor oh cool who also starred as obi-wan kenobi in the rest of the franchise of star wars which is really cool it's amazing so he survived all three movies he's part of the destruction of the death star after the shield generator was destroyed on endor i got some fun facts too Oh yeah one of my favorite it's really funny so uh emperor palpatine's chair they created a mechanized chair that would rotate automatically. And so whenever they needed to spin, they would just use the remote, but it wouldn't work. And so Ian McDermott Secretly was shuffling his feet under his cloak to turn it. (laughs) (laughs) And if you watch the scenes, it's like, just imagine his feet go like shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. (laughs) What's the movie that does that Was that Scary Movie 3 with the Matrix? The Matrix Reloaded with the... uh, Will Ferrell, right? The Architect spinning around. Yeah, Will Ferrell. That's not Will Ferrell, it's some some guy. No, Will Ferrell. Oh, he did the uh, MTV thing for it. But yeah, you're right, you're right. Matrix reloaded spoof with the Architect spinning in the white chair. I think that's what it was from. Something. Yeah, I think you might be right. I'm not sure though. But it's super funny if you imagine him doing that with his feet while playing the Palpatine. <laughs> and then Carrie Fisher really cared about Warwick Davis's well-being during filming because he had to spend a lot of time in the hot Ewok costume. Remember, he was only 11. So she provided him with milk and cookies between takes. Davis later commented she was everything an 11-year-old Wookiee could possibly wish for. Oh, it's so cute. Very cute. And we have a very, like we said, happy ending, the big celebration on Endor. We get to see the Force ghosts, which is great. We have Anakin. Young Anakin was recently inserted into this with Hayden Christensen when, he, when they were making Revenge of the Sith in 2005. George Lucas took this bit of filming. He didn't tell Hayden Christensen what it was for. But he ended up using it as the Force Ghost in the updated versions of Return of the Jedi. We also have Obi-Wan and Yoda, all Force Ghosts, hanging out, checking Luke out, being like, bro, you did it. Proud of you. It's it's just, it is kind of funny having Anakin next to Yoda and and Obi-Wan like, you're cool, bro. We forgive you (laughs) for the billions of people you killed. (laughs) It's totally fine, bro. (laughs) Hey, we make mistakes, man. We all make mistakes. He made a billion mistakes. (laughs) But it is, it is a cute ending. It's kind of, it's kind of cringy, but also just fun when it's like the bonfire party and everyone's like kind of dance to the beach. Hey, just <laughs> like George Lucas said, it's great for merchandise, <laughs> great for sales. It's a little ridiculous, but it, it's fun. It's fun. it would have been cooler to do the spaghetti western ending with Luke. Like I think that would walking been sick. into the sunset in the desert in Tatooine that would have been really cool. I think fans would have really loved that because I remember as a kid, even even as a kid, like kind of laughing at some of the sequences in this film, that included. But, you know, George is like, I need to make some more stacks. Gotta, gotta sell them Ewok dolls. I got the merchandising rights. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got anything else? No, I mean, I think, like I said, it's a great ending. Uh, the weakest of the trilogy, but also super fun. Uh, if I was going to give this a rating, I would say, I will give it a 7 out of 10. i give it, like, an 8 out of 10. Nice. I think Empire is a 10 out of 10. I think Empire is 10 out of 10, too. And then i give A New Hope, like, a 9, 9 out, out of 10. But uh, Empire, I think, is one of the greatest... Adventure films ever made and also one of the best sci-fi films ever made. Objectively it's phenomenal. Yeah. It really is terrific. Yeah. Holy crap, that movie's good. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening to the final episode of our original Star Wars trilogy series which appeared every Monday. This was Return of the Jedi. Go back and listen to The Empire Strikes Back and A New Hope if you haven't listened to them or watched them yet. Thanks for tuning in around the world. Become a patron of the show at patreon.com/ Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends and family members and movie people about our show. Take care, y'all. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John Gras, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Calvin Cam, and Lauren Smertz. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.